Uh, Psalm 139, let's just jump right in today. Uh, What we're going to see, this is a very familiar psalm to most of you, to many of you. I'm sure you've heard this psalm. It's it's beloved. Um, It's probably one of the more beloved psalms in the the book. Uh, Maybe Psalm 23 probably takes the cake for that. But Psalm 139 is way up there. And uh, and what we're really going to see in this psalm is the magnitude of God's love for us. Uh, that's really what this psalm uh, talks about and deals with. It's, it's just how huge and how amazing and how significant the love of God is for us. But here's a, here's a word of caution that we need to have before we get too carried away. Um, there's, a, so there's a book out there called uh, Cat and Dog Theology. Don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, but it's a really helpful little book. I mean, really, the title is probably the most helpful part about the book. But it, is, it gives a really good analogy. And basically, here's, here's the idea. Um, if you're a dog person, you know that your dog loves you, comes home, you come home, and you, it's just freaking out. It loves to see you, wagging its tail, jumping up and down. The cat, if you have a cat, if you're a cat person, you might have it maybe look at you, acknowledge you exist, perhaps. Uh, probably isn't very friendly towards you, but it's, it's there, right? It's, it exists. Um, so the concept behind this dog-cat theology is, is pretty much this. Dog says, in its mind, essentially we can assume this at least, uh, you feed me, you house me, you play with me, you take care of me, all these things. You must be God. And that's how a dog looks at the world, that you would be their God, right? They just love you because you care for them. The cat, on the other hand, says, you feed me, you house me, you, you take care of me. I must be God, right? That's, that's how the cat looks at the world. And so there is that, that reality, right? There, there are, there's dog theology, there's cat theology, and we have way too much cat theology in the church, where we'll say, wow, God, you love me, you died for me, you saved me, you did all these things for me, I must be awesome. And that's how a lot of our hearts, being twisted and bent by sin, look at the world. And we look at passages like Psalm 139, and we, we read how much God does love us and care for us, but we twist it in the wrong direction, where we'll twist it and go, wow, I must be something amazing rather than seeing it in the right perspective, which is, God, you are incredible, that you would love me and that you would do all these things for me. And so we, we need to be careful about our theology. We need to be careful about how we read psalms like this. I want to say that just on the outset because we are going to read some things that are very positive about ourselves and how God looks at us. We're going to see things here and how God pursues us and cares for us and And that could uh, inflate our egos um, or it could uh, humble us and and help us to stand before the Lord with with gratitude. And obviously the humility is the the peace we want to to see in our hearts. So uh, as we go through this, we're we're just going to take it in kind of four chunks, four uh, kind of big six verse or so at a time chunks. And, and look at various aspects of the love of God for us in, in Christ. So uh, let's look at verse 1 through 6. This is going to be the first uh, point. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. 
You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Now, here's, here's the point and what the psalm is trying to get across to us. It's, it's this, that the love of God is so magnificent in, in that he knows us. He knows us. I mean, that, that's really the whole thing here, right? That you've searched me, you've known me, and, and he doesn't just know you as a person, but he knows everything about you. He knows all of your movements, all of your actions, all of your thoughts, right? You know when I sit down and when I rise up. So God is perfectly acquainted with where you go and what you do and how you live your life. You are, it says, you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows even what we think about. He, he's give, he knows our thoughts. You search me and out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it all together. So he knows our, our words. He knows what we're going to say before we even say it. His, the knowledge that he has of us, it, it is something that should encourage us. It should comfort us. It should offer us a consolation. Um, but, but if you think about this, this could be a fairly terrifying thing right? You, you know me. You know where I sit down when I rise up. You know my thoughts. I, I don't know about you, but I've had some bad thoughts in my life. I've had bad thoughts today. You probably have too. We, this could be a horrifying concept that God would know everything about us, that he would know everything, our thoughts, our words, our, our, our actions, Everything about us is known, but here's the beautiful thing, is that he knows us completely, and yet he doesn't turn away. That's what's amazing. Because I don't know if you're different than me. I suspect you're not. Your, your thoughts and your actions are not always honorable or worthy of who God is. In fact, probably next to never. And, and so we have a God who knows us and pursues us and he, he knows us so well, but it doesn't make him wretch. It doesn't make him turn away from us. It doesn't, in fact, um, make him disgusted by us. The reality is that he actually draws closer to us. Look at verse three. It says, you searched out my path and my lying down. So not only does God know where you go and what you think and what you say, but he's actually seeking to be closer to you. He's searching out your path. He's, he wants to be in relationship with you, despite the fact that all of us are sinners and in, and in rebellion against him at times and certainly don't measure up. This, this is an amazing thing that God would search out our path and are lying down. And then it says that he is acquainted with all of our ways. He knows all of our ways. And that's remarkable. 
especially in light of the fact that he knows those ways and yet he doesn't turn from us. He doesn't run. In fact, he pursues. There's a, there's a song that um, Chris Tomlin wrote a number of years ago, early 2000s. I don't even remember the title of it, but there's a line in it that has struck, stuck with me for many years. And it's simply this, you know the depths of my heart and you love me the same. Think about that. Those words are true. And I think those words can be pulled right out of the psalm or at least inferred from it that God knows the depths of our heart, the, the wickedness of our heart, how deep the sin runs, and yet he loves us. What a, what a great God that he would love us even though he knows us perfectly. You know, there's, there's not a lot of people in your life who will know everything about you and not be disgusted by you. Let's just be honest. There are, there may, God may give you some of those people as a gift, but, but most people, if you get close enough to somebody and you get to really know them in the depths of their sinfulness and, and not the pretending version of them that they want to show, but if you really knew, right, most of us would walk away. God's not that way. He draws closer. He searches out our paths and our lying down. He knows us. This is, this is drawn from his love for us. Secondly here, we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. Um, and let, let's read those and then we'll talk about them. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. What, what are those verses telling us about the love of God for us in Jesus? Well, I think very simply, it's, it's this point that he is always with us. He never leaves us. This is really the point that the psalmist is trying to make, that David is trying to make in this. I mean, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? We know that we can't flee from God's presence. We know from the book of Jonah that he tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord was right there, sending a storm, sending a whale, sending all these things to come after Jonah and pursue him. Jonah's desire was to flee from his presence, and yet God wasn't able to be escaped, escaped from and so here you have David saying, where can we go? And then he, then he just goes on to kind of talk about all these scenarios. Uh, if I ascend to heaven, and so in his mind, he's not thinking heaven in the sense of where God is or where we'll go when we die. He's thinking the, the, the universe, the, the galaxies, the sky above, right? And so if, we, if I can get all the way up to space, and now David lived thousands and thousands of years before the rocket was invented, so no chance in his mind that he could ever get there but if he did, guess what? God's not 
going to be lost there. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. He says, then the other extreme, the other side of it is, if I make my bed in Sheol, and Sheol is the grave, it was sort of seen as this almost underworld in some, in some mythologies of the Jewish people. And so he's kind of just using these extremes, the sky and, and the grave, the underworld, the, the, this place below the earth. So he's, he's not saying he's actually going to these places, but if he was to, God's still there. Then he says, I could try to go as, as wide as possible on the earth if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. So going as far across the ocean as he could get, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand will hold me. Your right, the right hand is the hand of power, the hand of authority, and, and the hand that can cling onto us and not let us go. So he's saying simply this, you can't go too high, you can't go too low, you can't go too far. God is going to be with us. Then he says, maybe the darkness will cover me. I can just hide myself in darkness. And the light that's around me will turn to night. And then he says this amazing thing. Even the darkness is not dark to you. I, I don't know... Uh, you know, what you've gone through in your life, but there are probably, there's probably been days that you would just describe as darkness. Dark days, hard days. The darkness that we experience does not hide us from the Lord's presence. The darkness is not dark to him. The night, it says, is as bright as the day because darkness is as light to him. In other words, we can't hide from him and we can't go through anything so severe, so dark, so bleak, that he isn't with us. In other words, we are never alone. There may be times where we feel alone, but the comfort of the love of Christ is that we are never alone, that he is always with us. And I was thinking about this. Uh, there's a passage in the New Testament where this kind of comes, comes out a bit. And it's in, it's in Paul's letter to, uh, to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy. Um, if you don't know anything about 2 Timothy, basically all you really need to know to get the context is that it's Paul's final letter, um, the last letter he wrote, uh, at least that we have in our Bibles, the last letter he wrote, um, he was an older man. He was in prison. He was awaiting his, his trial before Caesar. And, and there are some things in 2 Timothy where, where Paul really becomes just very honest uh, and, and really lays it out for Timothy. And in verse, um, well, in verse 9 through uh, 18, it's kind of the section where he's talking about this. But basically, just to summarize it, he's, He's talking to Timothy. He's asking him to come, come to where he is, to come to Rome, um, to visit him. Uh, he wants him to bring some stuff to him. And a lot of times we just kind of overlook these, these kind of personal instructions in these letters because we're like, eh, he's talking to someone that's not me, right? Um, but, but within it, there's an amazing thing. Um, verse 16, here's what Paul says. It says, at my first defense, so that's the first like court appearing, essentially. He's trying to defend himself 
against being executed for being a Christian. He's in prison because he's a Christian and he's been preaching the gospel. And so he, he's been going to these courts and his, at his first defense, here's what he says. My first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. He, he's telling Timothy that all of these people that he's mentioned, he mentions Luke, he mentions Titus, he mentions uh, Tychius, he mentions all of these people, and all these people that have been partners in ministry, his friends, his helpers, and they all deserted him. No, no one was with him. And, but then look at verse 17. Here's what it says. It says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul is dealing with the, the reality of loneliness, of being abandoned by his friends. And, and in his time of most desperate need, when he's standing before a Roman court, he has no one there to help him, to defend him, to speak on his behalf. They've all, they've all left. I mean, what a, what a depressing place to be. And yet the, the Lord stood by him. And he tangibly felt the presence of Jesus, even though everyone on earth that he knew had, had left him. <coughs> Jesus did not leave him. Jesus stood by him and strengthened him. And I, and I hope that that encourages your heart this morning because we, we all go through seasons where we feel alone. And we feel like people have run out on us and that they're not there for us and that we're just going through all of this by ourselves. But we're not. The promise of Psalm 139, the, the reality that Paul experienced in 2 Timothy 4, it's true for us that we may feel alone, but we are not alone. The, the Lord is with us and he's for us. We cannot escape willingly or unwillingly. We will never be alone. That's a good, great comfort. Let's look at verse uh, 13 through 16 next here. It says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Here's the third thing that the love of God is, uh, is displayed through, and it's this, it's that he created us intentionally. That God wanted us alive. He made us the way we are. He, he made us how we look and, and our personalities and all of the things about us, God made God created, God formed. I mean, look at all of this like deliberate, intentional creation that God does. Look at these words. He formed us. He knitted us. He, he uh, wonderfully made us. He fearfully made us. He, 
He didn't, we weren't hidden from him. He knew where we were. He intricately wove us in the depths of the earth. He wrote about our days, every one of them, before they even ex- were, were experienced. God created us with intentionality. We need to know that God loved us enough to make us and that we're here for a purpose. We're here intentionally. And one of the writers who has uh, helped so much on this is a guy named Rick Warren, pastor in, in California, wrote a book that has sold more than pretty much any book in history uh, called The Purpose Driven Life. But in that book, um, he has a paragraph or a few sentences that are just really profound. He's got more than a few, but th- this one just really speaks to where we're at. And listen to what Rick Warren says, and it's all drawn from this psalm. He says, you are not an accident. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. Think about that. A lot of us struggle with identity, right? A lot of us struggle with, are we wanted? Are we actually, were we planned? You may not have been planned by your parents, but that doesn't mean that God didn't plan you. He says he wanted you alive. He created you for a purpose. Focusing on yourself will never reveal your real purpose. You were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. Only in God do we discover our origin, our identity, our significance, and our destiny. What, what amazing words, and it's all drawn from Psalm 139. That God intentionally created us. He loved us enough, even before we were born, he set his love on us. Um, and, and we're told that in Ephesians, we're told that in Romans, we're told that all over the Bible, that before we were born, God loved us and chose us in Christ. And, and that that should speak to our hearts. And again, not to pat ourselves on the back, but to extend gratitude and joy to him because of that truth that he created us intentionally and he created us to have a purpose here and and here's really where the purpose comes from Um, and we're going to see it in verse 17 through 24 now these words some of these words are a little bit uh stark and difficult at times to to wrap our heads around it so well, I'll do my best to explain what's happening, but let's read them first. It says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. Let's think about that. God's thoughts for us, if we were to count them, are more than the sand. That every grain of sand wouldn't measure up to how many thoughts God has for you. Wow. That, that should blow your mind. It says, when I am awake, I am still with you. Now, this is where things get a little bit interesting, so bear with us here. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. 
See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Now, if you were listening to that, you, you heard some things about hating our enemies and that just, like, how does that jive with what Jesus says, which is the opposite of that, right? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. How do we, how do we wrestle with this? Well, I, I, I think we have to understand some of the context of what David is thinking about um, he, he's thinking about like from a military kingly kind of position where he's got physical enemies. He's got actual like armies coming against him and those kind of things. But, but really, I think what this is trying to get across, if we, if we kind of take out some of those like real sh- shocking statements, what I think is happening here is that... Um, the way, the way that God's love for us is displayed is in how he transforms our hearts to love him. And so I think that by, by contrast to how much we love God and, and how much our affections are for him, that hatred is almost what it appears on, on the other side. In fact, Jesus does say that. He says, if anyone doesn't hate father or mother, brother or sister, uh, or you know, son or daughter, um, you know, for my sake, isn't worthy of me. Is Jesus saying we need to hate our moms and dads and our kids and all? No, he's saying, he's trying to use this, ex- this extreme language to help us understand that the love that we have for him should pale, uh, should pale everything else, right? That it should just completely um, be, be overwhelmingly love for him that appears then to be hatred for others, even at that, to, to that degree, right? It's, it's, it's extreme language, but it's meant to get our attention. I think that's what's happening here. And I think that what, what we're seeing is that, that Jesus wants our hearts to love him so much that we do begin to hate the things that he hates. Now, we don't need to hate the people, right? He, God wants us to love the people. Um, but God does hate sin, and he does hate things that are outside of his will. He, he does, and it's good that he does because it means that he's motivated to actually save us from those things. It's not about hating the people. We want to pray for the people. We want to help them meet Jesus and be saved and all those things are true. But, but what we're seeing in this text is that he changes our hearts. He makes us love him. And, and I think that that's kind of the capstone of all of this, that as we look at how he knows us and how he's with us and how he created us, the outcome of that should not be, oh, how great am I, but rather how amazing is he? How incredible is he? Look at how much he's done for me. It just compels us to love him more and more. And, and so as, as we've looked at this text, um, we, we've seen some amazing things and, and things that should stir our hearts for Jesus But what's amazing is that as we connect these things to him, we actually see a very similar uh, kind of progression in the book of Romans chapter 8. There's a couple of verses in Romans 8 that I want to just draw uh, your attention to here because um, Paul lays out this amazing thing that God did for us in saving us through Jesus. And yet the things that he talks about are the same things that David is talking about. There's just so much continuity. So if you look at Romans 8, we'll be in verse um, 29 and 30. 
just real simply here as we conclude, um, this is what Paul says. Um, and all of this, of course, is in light of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It says this, For those whom he, that's God, foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so, so here's the first thing that Paul draws out. It's the same thing that David does. That we were known to him. Those whom he foreknew, that means knew in advance. He predestined. He, he prepared he, before the foundation of the world, prepared our hearts for Jesus. But we were known by him before we were ever born. We were loved by him before we ever took a breath. That should comfort us greatly. Because what it means is that our salvation is not rooted in some ability of ourselves to get us to where Jesus wants us to be. Our salvation is rooted far before we were born and long before the the world even existed. He set his love on us. And in fact, that's really what the word foreknown means. Like we can, we hear that word and we think foreknowledge is God's like, you know, he knew about it in advance or he sort of looked down the, the tunnel of history Um, from where he was standing and saw us there and then decided, okay, because of something that they do, I'll love them. That's not what the word means. The word foreknowledge is really a word that, that implies love in advance, that he loved us in advance before we did anything good or bad, before we had made any decisions at all, before we had ever taken a breath of air. He loved us. What an incredible God we have. That he would love us with, with a, uh, an unconditional love purely based off his grace that, that was undeserved by us. So he foreknew those he predestined to be conformed. So the purpose of this, this act of love that leads to salvation is that we would be conformed or transformed into the image of Jesus that our lives would look like his. That's the whole goal of salvation. That's the whole goal of this Christian thing, is that we would become like Jesus. That's the point. And so here, here we see that. We see this love that, that existed before we existed. Then verse 30. So those that he predestined, he also called. He called. That's what this means is that he, he wants us here and now, in the moment, right? He, there's a point in time in your life where you are called and you respond to that call through faith. But that calling is go- like what David's talking about where he's never, he never leaves us, he pursues us, he comes after us. That's what this calling is pointing us to, that the calling of God is what theologians call the effectual calling, the, the calling that actually works to get us saved. And God does that through the pursuing power of the Spirit in the preaching of the gospel. As we hear it, our hearts respond to it because God had laid the groundwork for our hearts to respond. But he's in pursuit of us and he never abandons us in that call. And then we see this next line, 
those whom he has called, he also justified. Justification is that declared righteous um, reality, right? That God has said to you, you are righteous, not on the basis of your work, but because of Jesus who stood in your place. So his righteousness becomes yours. That happens in the moment of our trust in Christ. And we are justified. We are declared righteous before him. Well, this points, to, points us back to this idea of being created, right? David's talking about our, our origin as human beings being created with intentionality. But Paul is taking that and he's carrying it with it to not just your initial birth, but your new birth, your rebirth, your, your second birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, where if anyone will see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And, and Nicodemus, the man he was talking to in that context, asked the question, how, how is that possible? How can I get back into my mother's womb, which is really a gross image, right? And then be born again like that. That's, and Jesus is going, no, 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 no. You don't understand. That's not what I'm talking about. Born again in Jesus's mind is this rebirth this, that happens through justification of being declared righteous and now we're created new. So we're seeing these parallels, we're seeing the, the love of God that existed before we existed. We're seeing the calling of God, the pursuing of God. We're, we're seeing now the recreating of our lives in Christ through justification. And then finally, we're seeing this last line here. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what he means by glorified is We've been made like Jesus. We've gotten to the end. We've, we've now reached the point where we stand before him, where we're always positionally right with him, but, we'll all, but one day we will actually be right with him in, in practice and in every possible way. That's glorification. That's being transformed to be like him. And so the four points that, that David makes from Psalm 139 are, I think, very closely tied to the same four points that Paul makes about this progress of salvation that God provides. This, this predestining, foreknow, foreknown call to justification, to glorification. It's all tied into this. And, and at the end of the day, what salvation should draw our hearts to is not how great we are, but how gracious he is, how kind and merciful he is to us, that he would love us before we could love him back, that he would call us when we were running from him, that he would make us new when we were dead in our sins, and that he would glorify us one day, even though we are far from perfect where we are right now. There is great hope for us in the gospel. And there is great hope for us in Jesus. And that's what Psalm 139 should draw our hearts to. It's the hope that we have in him. So let me pray for us. Uh, and then we'll, we'll continue our worship through songs and, and through partaking of the Lord's table today. Father, we thank you that you have known us and that you pursue us, that you've created us both in, in our earthly life and in our spiritual life that you've given us new life and, and, and that you've intentionally done so. And Lord, we thank you that you are making us like you and will one day fully make us like you. 
these truths we can't fully wrap our heads around, but we rest in them. We, we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ for us, and we pray that that would be sealed in our hearts this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.